1: arrived at the very perimeter of the White House. Anger, rage, fury. Protesters opposing multiple government policies clashed with police in the French capital. It seems like everywhere you look right now, you see rising temperatures, smouldering resentment, blood boiling and floods of emotion. Do it live! I'll write it and we'll do it live! from Trump to Brexit, Hindu nationalism to Black Lives Matter, from Hollywood Me Too to pandemic protests, ISIS to white nationalists, Ukraine to Fox News, to my ongoing conflict with my unreasonably slow computer. It seems, as the historian Pankaj Mishra has argued, like we're living in an age of anger. The Atlantic has written that the politics of outrage is fast becoming a political norm. Mother Jones has pinned responsibility for our age of rage on Fox News. Others have blamed social media, racism, inequality. Turn on the television, scroll through social media, and you'll quickly discover that the globe is red with rage. And that's before we get personal. Below the political wrath. There's bar fights, mass shootings, domestic violence, road rage, and my irritation that the pizza has turned up cold again. Every year, Gallup produces a global emotion survey, asking 160,000 people around the world about their emotional experiences. Last year, the world was sadder, more stressed, and angrier than any time since the reports began 15 years ago one in four people around the world reported feeling angry at some point the day before. But what is anger? Does it have a point? Or would we be better off without it, if we could eliminate it completely? I'm going to explore the history of anger, how it's been thought about by people like the Stoics. Buddhists, Christians, and Enlightenment philosophers, and of course modern psychologists. I'm going to look at its effects throughout history, a little bit of neuroscience sprinkled in, while trying to look at it personally too. I think we'll come to some surprising conclusions. In many ways, when you think about it, the entirety of the history of civilization has been at least in part, an attempt to overcome anger. The judicial system was developed to replace revenge. Politics is meant to be a replacement for the force of brute strength. Religion arose from the anger of the gods. Culture, music, and art are a way to come together, or to channel our base instincts into something more productive. Anger, is likely contained in some way in every great work of literature and much of philosophy. Homer's Iliad, the founding myth of the Western canon, has as its first line, sing goddess Achilles rage, black and murderous. And I have to admit that I myself am an angry man. I rage at slow internet, my blood boils as I scroll through Twitter, I'm endlessly irritated by politicians, I'm provoked by what I perceive as injustice all around me, I think I'm hard done by, I ask why it's always me, I shout in traffic, I got in scraps at school as a teenager. I've become infuriated by my video editing software, exasperated by the weather. I am an angry, stressed, overworked, frustrated, self-involved, petty man. Because while I'm well aware that anger is dangerous, exhausting, unnecessary, I've always had the suspicion that it also has its uses that anger has also been used as a fuel, a motivator, something to fight injustice, and I wanted to see if that was true. When was the last time you were angry? What was it about? Do you think it was justified? Do you think it's always negative to be resisted? Or can anger be practical? Let's take a look at rage. I'll kick
0: your ass out of here, too.
1: And then you expect me to be chipper for five straight hours.
0: It's miserable. That man over there is a fascist. The man in that White House is a fascist and it's shameful, it's shameful that they're protecting him. Man!
1: Dividedness. That's what we see. Anger is complicated to investigate because it's difficult to pin down. Its triggers vary. The experience of it changes from person to person, culture to culture, and studies and understandings of anger and its causes vary and have an effect on the anger itself. Anger is a continuum, from mild irritation to red-blooded, murderous, furious rage, from stubbing your toe to psychological warfare. Social media, email, and phones in general have meant we have new ways to be angered, to express anger. We have new triggers and new norms. Technology shapes the way anger manifests. And on top of this, for some, anger can even be righteous. God's righteous anger. Anger at injustice. And for others, it's debilitating, unhealthy, or just never justified at all. So with all that in mind, let's start at the beginning, the banishing of anger. Anger is fascinating historically because it's at the heart of the emergence of civilization. The Buddhist tradition started around the fourth to sixth centuries BCE and the Stoics the third century BCE and they were both suspicious of the external world, rejecting the idea that we should respond to things outside of us, outside of our control. It's significant that many of these ideas were arising at the same time as the first large institutions, Greek democracy, or the Mahajanapadas, the kingdoms of India. In the Greek playwright Aeschylus's play Oresteia, the goddess Athena decides to introduce courts to replace the cycle of revenge, bloodshed, and warfare that was plaguing Athens. Introducing a judicial system was a way to weigh evidence, to bring in third parties and juries. Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war, comes into conflict with the Furies, the gods of revenge. The Furies are depicted as dog-like creatures, but they're not exiled. In fact, Athena comes to an agreement with them. They're to be incorporated into the system. The legal system must tame the passions of the people of ancient Greece. Athena promises that the Furies will be respected, honoured, and become a constructive force instead of a vengeful one. Commenting on this, The philosopher Martha Nussbaum writes that the law gives a double benefit – it keeps us safe without, and it permits us to care for one another, unburdened by retributive anger within. Influentially, Nussbaum argues that anger is always problematic, emphasizing the significance the Greeks placed on taming it in their myths. For Buddhists, a continent away there were three poisons that caused our misery, hatred, desire, and delusion. We hold on to these things as if they're justified, as if things outside of us, external events, caused them. But in reality, it's the poisons themselves in us that cause our unhappiness. If we just let them go, if we live without attachment, without suffering, without desire for things that are material and fleeting, if we let go of our hate, we'll find nirvana. The Stoics of ancient Greece took a similar path. For the Stoics, the problem with anger is that it corrupts our reason, distorts our judgment, that we should take the world for how it is, not for how we want it to be. The Greek Stoic Seneca said that, some wise men have said that anger is a brief madness, for it's no less lacking in self-control, forgetful of decency, unminded of personal ties, unrelentingly intent on its goal, shut off from rational deliberation, stirred for no substantial reason, unsuited to discerning what's fair and true, just like a collapsing building that's reduced to rubble, even as it crushes what it falls upon. For Buddhists, anger poisons, for Stoics, anger distorts, for both it has no uses whatsoever. This idea, as we'll see, has influenced a long long tradition, and the idea that anger is irrational is probably still the dominant interpretation today. The idea that anger is to be avoided completely has been found in some surprising places throughout the 20th century. The Semai of Malaysia were described by anthropologists as a culture that put a premium on avoiding anger and violence. and The anthropologist Jean Briggs called her study of the Arctic Utku never in anger because of their emphasis on never displaying anger in the harsh conditions they lived in. But I think the Buddhists and the Stoics have plenty of good advice. Seneca, for example, said that the wise man, calm and even-tempered in the face of error, not an enemy of wrongdoers, but one who sets them straight, leaves his house daily with this thought in mind, I will encounter many people who are devoted to drink, many who are lustful, many who are ungrateful, many who are greedy, many who are driven by the demons of ambition. I find it useful to remind myself of this too before I get in the car and go on a stressful journey. I live in London, this happens quite a lot. But I've always been suspicious that while they have their uses, Stoicism and Buddhism are philosophies of resignation. They shut us off from the external world, resign us to the status quo, accepting what is for what is. For example, the Greek Stoic Epictetus wrote that it is impossible that happiness and yearning for what is not present should ever be united. Anger, in a way, is a yearning that what just happened was not present, that it didn't just happen. The key to happiness then is to yearn for what isn't present. The cure is to be indifferent to the world, take it as it comes, accept the negatives as part of life. But what happens when anger is triggered by injustice? What if anger motivates us into action of some kind? What if yearning for something to be different is a powerful fuel for change? To begin to think about this, we need to ask, what is anger? Feeling angry is a natural thing, just as natural as feeling glad or sorry. But angry feelings are disagreeable, they make you act and look as well as feel unhappy. Anger, like all emotions, is difficult to define. It's both near-universal, a basic emotion as the psychologist Paul Ekman has influentially argued, and cultural, social, geographically and historically varied and determined. That's to say that the way anger is triggered, experienced, understood and discussed differs from person to person and place to place depending on whether you're a Spartan or a 20th century priest, a king or a woman in the workplace. But there are some near universals. We often say things like anger washes over me, or someone was overcome with fury, went ballistic, incandescent and flooded with rage. When the experience of and causes of anger vary so much, when we have to describe a biochemical process with imprecise language, metaphors are a good place to start. There's an interesting reason why the feeling of anger is often described with words like flood, overcome, fire, washes over, or has been described as a fuel. It's likely because our amygdala, that almond-sized part of our brain that deals with emotion, does literally flood our body with chemicals that trigger a range of processes. It releases hormones, adrenaline, quickens the heart, signals norepinephrine to trigger the release of glucose to ramp up our energy levels, sends oxygen around the body and tenses muscles ready to fight or flight. In short, anger readies us for action. The problem is that our amygdala is not a precise instrument. Sometimes it often turns the tap on in the wrong situations, it's often mistaken. Stress is a short-term reaction to a scenario that has long-term health consequences, and anger, despite raising our energy levels, is meant to feel bad, of course, because as the philosopher Baruch Spinoza noted, it's a sign that we're in a bad position that the scenario we're in might not be good for us for our body for our future health our well-being in this sense it's a predictor we can already see from the physiology that anger has its uses seeing injustice police brutality bullying racism a physical threat ramps up our body ready to fight it both physically and mentally and anger doesn't just fuel us in the moment. Importantly, the amygdala also encodes memories. Why is this important? Because if the amygdala sees something that makes us angry, fearful, happy or sad, we want to remember that so that we can use that information in the future. I bet you can think of many times you've been angry a long, long time ago in ways that aren't really relevant anymore. because evolutionarily speaking, we want to remember something negative happening to us so that we can learn how to avoid it next time. Okay, so that's the biochemistry. What about the psychology? Psychologist Jerry Deffenbacher mapped out this influential model of anger in 1996. There's an event that sparks the anger, the precipitant, I got beeped at in the car. My computer froze. I got a parking ticket. But there's also the pre-anger state. I was tired, frustrated, in a rush, hungry, anxious, sad. Then there's the appraisal, the way we think about what's happened. Then the feelings in the body and the mind. Then the way we express that. Psychologist Ryan Martin talks about the precipitants of anger tending to come from three different categories – injustice, poor treatment, and goal blocking. Let's run quickly through what might happen. The precipitant – a tweet, for example – hits your brain and amygdala, which then sends signals to your hypothalamus, a small P-shaped section at the base of your brain, triggering your sympathetic nervous system, otherwise known as fight or flight. Your hypothalamus then sends signals to the rest of your brain and body to start doing that ramping up. Energy is diverted from elsewhere in the body, but at the same time, a signal is sent from the amygdala to another part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the part responsible for planning, decision-making, advanced cognition, reason, and what's called executive function. All of this happens in a split second. We then start thinking, appraising the situation, ruminating sometimes. We often think about how unreasonable the situation is, how wrong it is, what words or actions we can use to respond, how to express the anger, whether to suppress the anger. And what's interesting is that some of this seems to happen automatically, and at other times it feels very purposive, like we're doing it, like we're in charge. Seneca agreed with this model. He thought the first impression, the precipitant, wasn't anger because it could be calmed down. That there was an important, controllable, rational gap between the precipitant, the tweet, and the appraisal. This is unjust. He said, suppose that someone has reckoned he was harmed wants to take revenge and then immediately calms down when some reason urges against it. I don't call this anger, I call it the movement of a mind still obedient to reason. Anger is something that leaps clear of reason, that snatches reason up and carries it along. He thought that anger was a judgment and so could be controlled, that it would yield to reason, if we were patient with it. He said, we must struggle against the passion's first causes. The cause of anger is a belief that one has been wronged, to which one ought not lightly give credence. One shouldn't immediately assent even to what is clear and obvious, for some things that are false look like the truth. One must always take one's time. The passage of time makes the truth plain. The great cure for anger, he thought, was delay. Nussbaum agrees, but while rejecting the usefulness of anger, she does acknowledge that, I also recognise a borderline case of genuinely rational and normatively appropriate anger that I call transition anger, whose entire content is how outrageous something should be done about that. But if anger really is so common, So universal, so biologically ingrained and evolutionarily useful. If, as Ryan Martin says, it's a response to being treated unfairly, to seeing injustice, or to a goal we have being blocked, are there not instances when anger is justified? How could we interpret when anger is right or wrong? (laughs) than dismissing them completely, Aristotle was one of the only ancient thinkers to take the middle road and accept emotions as part of being human. Emotions, he thought, weren't simply irrational, they were judgments about things that could be right or wrong. He said that the trick with anger was to get angry at the right times, with reference to the right objects, towards the right people with the right aim and in the right way. Mostly though, he advised his readers to try to be unperturbed and to seek calm, for the good-tempered man is not revengeful, but rather tends to forgive. The Christian tradition generally inherited a synthesis of the Stoic and Aristotelian views. In the 4th century, the Christian monk Avagrius Ponticus warned that there were eight destructive thoughts that came from demons and led to vices. They were gluttony, lust, avarice, sadness, anger, boredom, vainglory, and pride. Monks, he advised, were supposed to battle these demons in their souls. Later abbots, like John Cassian, had monks fight these demons one by one, He compared the vices to companies attacking in an army. Once one company had been defeated, another would inevitably come. It was important to always be on guard, always be training for the fight. But the Christian worldview led to a contradiction. If sin came from the devil, was it not okay to be angry with that sin? And what about God's anger? In the book of Numbers, it's reported that the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. These contradictions began to be synthesized in Christianity. The medieval priest and philosopher Thomas Aquinas built on Aristotle's theories, also arguing that emotions could be good, He said it's right to rise up against things contrary and harmful and wrote that he who is not angry when there is just cause for anger is immoral because anger looks to the good of justice and if you can live amid injustice without anger you are immoral as well as unjust. The Christian tradition took a nuanced view on anger because on the one hand a good Christian is forgiving and turns the other cheek while on the other, sin is to be battled against and certain types of anger are righteous. John Warren, a Puritan minister in England said that we should be angry at the sin, not the sinner, that sin is the proper formal object of anger. God's anger is only at sin. But the unprecedented eruption of violence during the religious wars of the 16th and 17th centuries renewed the European concern with anger. Take this painting by Pieter Brugel the Elder from 1557. There's a concern not just with anger as a personal sin, but with its effects as it's unleashed across Europe through warfare. The reformation that started in Germany in 1517 and led to the wars of religion open an important question – who has the right to interpret God's will? The church? The priests? The ordinary men and women at home with the bible? Who has the right to decide what makes God happy and makes him angry? The idea that there's such a thing as righteous anger leads to another question – what is the right anger? and more importantly, who is right to get angry? When theologians began to justify anger, a Pandora's box opened. The philosopher Peter Singer has talked about an expanding circle of rights throughout history. Once the rights of man were declared by American and French revolutionaries, it was inevitable that someone like Mary Wollstonecraft would ask why those same rights didn't extend to women, and in the same way, once anger has been characterised as right in some instances, it was inevitable that the circle would expand from the limits of the righteous anger of gods, kings and priests. The philosopher Peter Slottegic has argued that the just avenging God of Judaism and Christianity left the West a quote, treasury of rage to draw from. In other words, Once you open that door to some rage being allowed, in the same way some are allowed rights, people start to question, why am I not allowed to be angry too? Psychologist Ryan Martin writes that one clear and consistent finding across the anger research literature is that not everyone gets the same right to be angry. While some people may be rewarded and praised for their anger, Others are told to be civil, to calm down, and even lose credibility. It's in this way that anger is an explicitly political emotion. Being told to calm down and be rational can be used as a tool, used by the powerful to sanitise the emotional and temperamental complaints of the powerless or oppressed, and to paint the one who has the luxury to be calm and reasonable as, well, calm and reasonable. Take the trope of the angry black beast in the nineteenth century, or the deluded woke eco-warrior today. Or take one study that found that African-American women are three times more likely to be sentenced to anger management than white women. And of course, if anger is a response to slights on status, to goal blocking, to injustice, then the treasury of rage that Peter Slotajic talked about is more likely to be experienced by people in poverty, who face injustice, who have their goals blocked by the difficulties of everyday life. Douglas Jacobs has noted in the New York Times how many studies have linked discrimination to long-term health problems like increased blood pressure, heart difficulties, increased mortality. In fact, 700 studies have made this link. In short, the likelihood of experiencing anger is mapped out unevenly across the world. It's interesting that powerful and comfortable figures like Seneca and, as we'll see, Descartes could discuss their emotions rationally and calmly and deliberatively through their writing while those who don't have the luxury to do that usually experience their anger in the immediate, somatically, experientially. Is it any wonder then that philosophical writing becomes much more, well, philosophical, taking a dim view on anything experienced out in the world by those busied and troubled and caught up in the problems of day-to-day life, when anger and reason are separated by philosophers up in their ivory towers, is something else going on? The Enlightenment philosophers didn't quite know what to do with the motions rationalists like Descartes and Spinoza tended to classify them as bodily so that they could be controlled in some way by reason. Descartes and Spinoza were both influenced by the Stoics, but Descartes believed that emotion was sent around the body by the animal spirits, which quote, move the body in all the different ways it is capable of. But ultimately, he argued, They were answerable to our rational thinking soul. Spinoza took a different view. Emotions could be controlled, but they weren't simply bodily. They were in the mind too. They were both mental and physical. But he did have a relatively dim view of the emotions, unless they were used calmly and followed the command of reason. Of anger, he said. Anger is the desire by which we are impelled, through hatred, to injure those whom we hate. Others during the Enlightenment took the emotions more seriously. David Hume and Adam Smith both argued that emotions were essential to humans. In fact, we needed them to be moral. We needed to feel anger or pity or shame in order to judge right from wrong. Hume said that we recoil from the person guilty of cruelty and we feel a stronger hatred than we are sensible of on any other occasion. This leads us towards moral action, ethical action. And most famously, Jean-Jacques Rousseau argued that the passions were a part of being human. He said that he could be wrong about facts, but I cannot go wrong about what I have felt or what my feeling has led me to do. And while the philosophers of rationalism and reason had the most influence, Rousseau sparked a counter-revolution. He influenced the Romantics and the French revolutionaries who placed an emphasis on feeling. For the Romantics, it was important to consult the inner voice, the impulse, the intuitions within, the German Romantic, Novalis said that the heart is the key to the world and life. During the Enlightenment, on the one hand, there was a great culture of progress, of new urban life, of optimism, of science and discovery, of excitement about possibility and change, while on the other, there were those that felt left behind, serfs, the dispossessed, the unaccounted for, who often tended to identify with Rousseau's prescription to feel, to feel anger, jealousy, rage. Historian Pankaj Mishra in The Age of Anger writes that, what makes Rousseau and his self-described history of the human heart so astonishingly germane and eerily resonant is that, unlike his fellow 18th century writers, He described the quintessential inner experience of modernity for most people, the uprooted outsider in the commercial metropolis, aspiring for a place in it and struggling with complex feelings of envy, fascination, revulsion, and rejection. The frustrated men and women who felt left out from the processes of modernization began to organize new ways of seeing the political world nationalism, socialism, anarchism, terrorism, fascism. In countercultures, anger was often justified as a way of rebelling, a way of fighting, a way of advocating for freedom of different types, or even conformity. For the first time in history, anger became a political right for anyone, not just for gods, kings and priests. Mishra writes that during the French Revolution, the place of anger in French discourse swelled markedly. A sample of many of the materials produced during that period shows a notable increase in the use of the term colère, the French equivalent of the English word anger, as well as related words, resentment, rage, fury, and so on. The French revolutionary Mirabeau, for example, wrote that From the mountaintop they should, godlike, launch amid thunderbolts the eternal decrees of justice and the will of the people. The hour of justice and of anger has arrived. Another representative said in a speech that the French people, bent over under the yoke of the most hateful slavery, worn out by the crimes and vexations of tyrants and their accomplices, rose altogether on july the 14th 1789 broke their chains and in their just anger stormed the bastille the english conservative edmund burke admonished the revolutionaries in france warning that pride ambition avarice revenge lust sedition hypocrisy ungoverned zeal and all the train of disorderly appetites lead to destruction to fury outrage and insult. Again, reprimanding of anger could be used as a political tool, painting the colonised, the native, the other, the woman as angry, irrational, emotional. There was a fine line between the defence of emotion as a potent political tool and the excesses of anger leading to mass violence. Futurists and fascists of the early 20th century glorified violence. The first line of the Futurist Manifesto, written in 1909 as an unapologetic call to modernization, read, We intend to glorify the love of danger, the custom of energy, the strength of daring. Italian author Giovanni Papini wrote that the future needs blood, it needs human victims, butchery, internal war and foreign war, revolution and conquest, that is history. Blood is the wine of stronger peoples, and blood is the oil for the wheels of this greater machine which flies from the past to the future. The futurists would get their wish with the First World War, but is it true that it's only anger that's responsible for the excesses of the French Revolution? For warfare and genocide. Why not other emotions? Why not other motives? Why not greed, profit, nationalism, love of country, even, fear? Love and jealousy can lead to violence as much as anger, and psychopaths are known as cold killers. Answers to questions like this don't come easily. But what's undeniable is that social movements rely on emotion. Against the rationalists and the idea of a liberal, ordered, reasonable, logical world, Freud and Nietzsche challenged the dominant view inherited from the Enlightenment. They argued that under the surface, people were motivated, were moved to act by forces they didn't really understand, couldn't comprehend, whether by the passions of the unconscious or by the resentments and histories of their ancestors. According to Freud and Nietzsche, there was a hidden underside to man's history. Their ideas became popular after World War I as Europe struggled to come to terms with the storm of twisted steel and incomprehensible death that had been unleashed across the continent. And today, demagogues still appeal to anger, to resentment, to jealousy and fear. Erdogan in Turkey, Modi in India… Marine Le Pen in France, Trump in America, Brexit in the UK, they've all shown how under the surface there is that treasury of rage to be drawn from and it's not going anywhere if history is anything to go by. The trick then must be to mobilise that emotion for good. Today, psychologists usually reject the view of people like Descartes and the Stoics that the emotions are just part of the body, irrational, unwieldy, a burden on our logic and reason. Instead, most think of emotions as purposive, as a way of engaging with the world, of doing something, of praising something. By the 1960s, cognitive psychologists began to recognise that emotions were part of our cognition. Magda Arnold, the founder of this view, wrote that, to arouse an emotion, the object, whether a thing or an event or a situation, must be appraised as affecting me in some way, affecting me personally as an individual with my particular experience and my particular aims emotions began to be thought of as intelligent, that there was no real clear divide between passion and reason. Emotions can be right or wrong. Psychologist Daniel Kahneman has argued that emotions are a way of thinking quickly. They're instincts, shortcuts, they ramp everything up ready to go without too much deliberation, which comes after and the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio has argued that emotional memories can serve as markers to access information in the brain quickly. Which is why the amygdala deals with emotion and memory. If we see a bear, fear a bear, run from a bear, see what to do in a bear attack on television, we want to be able to remember and access that information quickly in the future. This idea that emotions are intelligent leads to a more nuanced view of them. Like any other type of information in the brain, they can be right or wrong. We often say things like, he was right to get upset or wrong to get angry. In other words, we've adopted a mixed view. Righteous anger is justifiable, sometimes within limits. Culturally we tend to accept that people can be rightly angered, but usually only if that anger is delivered in a controlled way. Martin says that, I think of anger as a fuel, it energises us to do the things we need to do. He continues, Anger is a normal and often healthy response to a variety of situations. Anger can be understood, managed and used in a way that is healthy, positive and pro-social. So, how do we separate the good from the bad? How do we channel the bad into the good? If we accept that there's such a thing as good anger, righteous anger, the next question to ask might be whether any anger we're thinking about, ours or others is useful, instrumental in achieving a goal of some kind. Anger might energise, but it also can, of course, over-energise. It can obsess, it can ruminate, it can cause long-term health problems, it can cause issues with personal relationships, of course. It's clear there's a fine line between using anger and being abused by anger. Nussbaum argues that there are two mistakes in anger. One is that it's a road to payback, but that payback does nothing to address the actual issue. Like revenge, it's the idea that it supposedly restores balance in some way. She says it's mistaken. This does nothing to improve the position of the person that was wronged, whether you or someone else. The other mistake is that anger is the road of status. And again, she argues that getting angry at someone who has slighted you or embarrassed you, made you feel like your status has been lowered or has gotten in your way, mischaracterized you, does nothing to improve the position you're in. In both cases, she says, addressing the problem is better approached by different means. It doesn't mean you have to ignore it, the rational response is to focus attention on whatever improves the problem. She writes, To put my radical claim succinctly, when anger makes sense, it's normatively problematic, focused narrowly on status. When it's normatively reasonable, focused on the injury, it doesn't make good sense and is normatively problematic in that different way. In a rational person, anger, realizing that, soon laughs at itself and goes away. But does anger, if brief and controlled, really provide the fuel for solving a problem? Does it alert the reasonable part of your brain that something must be addressed? Does it cement the injustice in our memory so it's more likely to be remembered? The question is whether anger provides this initial fuel. I think most everyday occurrences of anger don't pass this test, that road rage, attacks on status, rudeness, computer problems are better shrugged off and dealt with stoically. But there's one area that anger has seemed to have had a positive effect and provided the fuel for action. Injustice. The French revolutionaries used anger. I'm angry watching Putin talk right now. Even during Indian independence, which is remembered as peaceful, the British feared the increasing anger of organisations within India. The British knew that the game was up, that the Indian people wouldn't accept colonial rule anymore and we can see the disagreement about the uses of anger in the contrasting positions of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X during the civil rights movement. King famously preached calm and restraint. He wrote that his speeches tried to be militant enough to keep my people aroused to positive action, and yet moderate enough to keep this fervour within controllable and Christian bounds. Malcolm X took a different view when travelling around africa he'd noticed that where countries achieved their independence someone had gotten angry of the famous march on washington in 63 malcolm x wrote whoever heard of angry revolutionists or harmonizing we shall overcome some day while tripping and swaying along arm in arm with the very people they were supposed to be angrily revolting against but despite these seemingly contrasting positions Malcolm X said that he never lets himself get over emotional and angry, and likewise King had said that segregation almost makes him angry. So again, where's the line? How do we find it? The Stoic philosopher Epictetus divided the world into internals – things you have control over – and externals – things you have no control over. He said it only made sense to focus our attention on the things we have control over. The weather is not worth getting angry about, but injustice? We might often have no control over it directly, but we certainly have control over how much we contribute towards bringing awareness to it, discussing it, and fighting it. Take this painting, Guernica by Picasso. It's one of the most famous anti-war paintings in history, and Picasso produced it because of his outrage at the bombing of Guernica by fascists during the Spanish Civil War. Anger injustice has clearly affected change. Whether it's necessary, more powerful than calm, able to be tamed, or is productive in the long term, I think varies from person to person, situation to situation. But if we can learn when anger is detrimental to us, and when we might use it as fuel for engagement with the world, then we can mould our anger, utilise it, control it, tame it for the good, turn it into a creative act like Picasso. Because as the cognitive psychologists of the 60s recognised, if anger is intelligent it can be cognitive, factual right or wrong. So it is a tool. In a similar way, anger is never distinct. It's never simple. It can be mixed with empathy, passion, sadness, even joy in some ways. In that way, for Picasso, it produced a powerful piece of art. A term that comes up often is channeling or transition. Martin writes that anger is alerting you to a problem. Channel your anger into identifying and solving that problem, creating art, literature, poetry and music. And Nussbaum says, transition anger does not focus on status, nor does it even briefly want the suffering of the offender as a type of payback for the injury. It never gets involved at all in that type of magical thinking. It focuses on social welfare from the start, saying, Something should be done about this. It commits itself to a search for strategies, but it remains an open question whether the suffering of the offender will be among the most appealing. I think transition anger mixes anger with creativity, with logical thinking, with mobilisation and coherent argument and focuses on the issue that made you angry. And I think, and I can only speak for myself here, that if anger at injustice is a universal, then transition anger or channeling anger is an existential impulse of some kind. It's always going to be there. It defines our relationship with our own biology. It's part of being human and we can't help but engage with it in some way. Historian Barbara Rosenwein has written that, if anger is natural, if it's part of the human condition, if it's a part of human nature, then there's no point in imagining that we may reject it. There is not even much sense in endowing it with ethical value, whether good or bad. If anger is natural, then the best thing we may do is understand it, where it resides, how it's produced, how it works, how we might control it. I've learnt a lot about anger here. I've learnt a lot from the Stoics, from psychologists, from history. I've learnt a lot of practical advice. I like trying to think reasonably about emotion. But overall, I really like Aristotle's take. When human beings are angry, they feel pain. But when they avenge themselves, they feel pleasure. Those who fight for such reasons like that are warlike, yes, but they are not courageous, for they do so not in the sake of what is good or in the manner dictated by reason, but rather out of emotion. Instead, he said that anger must be made reasonable. Anger is necessary, nor can any struggle be carried to victory without it. It must fill the mind and kindle the spirit, but it must be employed as a foot soldier, not the general. And The great philosopher Robert Solomon tells us that we cannot forget that we live our lives through our emotions, and it is our emotions that give our lives meaning. What interests or fascinates us, who we love, what angers us, what moves us, what bores us, all of this defines us gives us character, constitutes who we are. Thanks so much for watching everyone and don't be mad, I have a little favour to ask if you click that channel button, watch another video, it will really help the algorithm. I've got ones on Spinoza, why the internet hasn't fixed democracy, the problem with Zuckerberg's metaverse, the psychology of racism, and if you're feeling really generous and really enjoyed this video which was maddening to make in parts but I've really really enjoyed it then please please go to my patreon below and support me for as little as a dollar and remember click subscribe and the bell and follow me on twitter and all the rest of that stuff most of all thank you so much for getting through that monster video to the end leave a comment tell me what you think um, and see you next time Thank you.
0: The cat